0: Welcome back to the Battleground Ukraine podcast with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. It's been another dramatic week of developments in Ukraine, including a daring attack on the Kerch Bridge that connects Crimea to mainland Russia, and Putin's violent and indiscriminate response in the form of multiple rocket attacks on Ukrainian cities.
1: After the break, we're going to be talking to an old friend of the podcast, Lieutenant-Colonel Pavlo Kazan of the Ukrainian Army, who took time off from his frontline duties on Monday, even as the rockets were raining down across Ukraine, to give us an update on recent Ukrainian successes on the battlefield, his fear that Russia might use a tactical nuclear weapon, and why Putin and other Russian war criminals, as he sees them, need to pay for what they've done.
0: But first, we need to discuss the latest news. And it includes, of course, as I mentioned, the attack on the Kerch Bridge, which is not only an important strategic target for Ukraine, as Russia uses it to bring in most of its military supplies for the southern front through Crimea, but also a hugely significant symbolic target because it was opened by Putin himself in 2018. So the first question I think we have to ask, Patrick, is who do we think was responsible
1: the Ukrainians are the obvious ones. Uh, they haven't quite fessed up. And there's an alternative view suggesting that uh, the Russians themselves or Russian opponents of Putin might have something to do with it. I think in reality, uh, it's, it's probably the Ukrainians. Uh, the initial report suggests a lorry with a bomb on board. Uh, another intriguing possibility, James Bondish again, as we've seen quite a lot of this in this war, is some uh, kind of missile fired from the water level where the bridge is at its weakest, uh, the Russians apparently recently captured some sort of unmanned underwater vehicle, a kind of self-driving submarine. Well, it's possible, of course, that the Ukrainian equivalent of the of our SBS used one of these uh, to attack the bridge. Uh, this is what the Russians uh, basically are saying. However, I wouldn't quite discount the story or the theory that the Russians themselves were responsible. Stories have been appearing on pro-Kremlin channels of the Telegram messenger service. Uh, Now, these offer a wealth of detail, which one would imagine could only come from inside the security services. About the operation, they named the driver. He was apparently a Tatar living in Krasnodar. The exact details of where and when he picked up his cargo, 21 tons of packaging material, all of which suggests the Russians were behind it. You can read all about it in an article by the uh, excellent Owen Matthews, on the Spectator website. But why would they do it? This is where it gets difficult. What do you think?
0: Uh, well, it's, it's a very good question. I mean, the speculation is two elements, of course, within uh, Russia. One, of course, is the hard right. Uh, this is a hard line response to uh, provoke Putin into himself responding, which, of course, he has done, although we can discuss the timing of that um, it could be, of course, opponents for the regime too. I mean, it's very difficult to know, and and uh, it'll join a lot of other mysteries, frankly, like those who killed uh, Daria Dugin, the daughter of the Russian ultra-nationalist Alexander Dugin, who was blown up by a car bomb in Europe. We know, of course, the consequences, or at least we think we know the consequences, uh, because just a few days later, Russia—and this is uh, began on Monday of this week—Russia began firing. Uh, On that day, up to 80 cruise missiles, some say even more, at Ukrainian cities. Now, they didn't do an enormous amount of carnage, uh, although any death, of course, is tragic in this war. They killed 12 and they wounded uh, scores more of people. Uh, And it's interesting that this indiscriminate act was celebrated, of course, by Russian hardliners uh, and was apparently ordered by the new commander of all the Russian forces in Ukraine, General Sergei Surovikin. Um, 55 years old and he made his name effectively destroying aleppo in syria
1: uh yeah we've all seen the pictures of him he looks a pretty nasty piece of work his nickname is general armageddon which uh, just about sums up his modus operandi and his record to date it's extraordinary to think this guy's um, been put in this very elevated position given his past he's served time in prison twice for allegedly selling weapons this is plays into what we've been hearing a lot about, about the absolute uh, centrality of corruption to the poor performance of the Russian forces, you know, if if even their senior commanders are up to their necks in all sorts of dirty dealings. He's also got a record of of firing on his own people. He was uh, led a military column against protesters all those years ago during the 1991 coup attempt against uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. Yeah, which resulted in several deaths. Um, but I think it seems to me, uh, you know, as a lot of people have been saying, I think all everything points to this being a sign of weakness uh, rather than a genuine kind of uh, use of resources that they've been uh, leaving in reserve until now and are now bringing to bear. I think, you know, we've seen a rallying in the West the US, Germany have said they're going to actually give it practical expression, uh, their support with something that has been sorely needed these last couple of days, anti-missile systems, which are, we know, are capable of knocking down these cruise missiles. Uh, they were promised months ago, and now they're actually going to be sent. But I think against all that, we've got to remember that this is we still haven't got a global alliance against Russia, China, and India have made disapproving noises, but they're still short of outright condemnation. And you have people who are meant to be our allies, uh, strategic allies. Saudi Arabia are being particularly unhelpful. There was a recent OPEC meeting. Their energy minister stood alongside the Russian deputy prime minister and announced that uh, they would be slashing oil production by 2%, which, of course, sent the price of crude rocketing. And this was after Joe Biden had sent envoys to Riyadh begging them not to.
0: Yeah, I mean, with friends like that, uh, of course, Saudi Arabia, I'm afraid, if we go all the way back to 9-11, I'm not suggesting for a second there was official Saudi uh, complicity in that. But, of course, it's it's very murky, the sequence of events leading up to and after. And, of course, a lot of the the perpetrators were Saudi nationals, albeit opponents of the regime. Um, Very, very interesting speech given yesterday, Patrick, uh, by the British head of GCHQ, uh, Britain's cyber security agency, and that's Jeremy Fleming, who I myself actually met uh, a couple of months ago at GCHQ. Very articulate, bright uh, man. Came from MI5. interestingly enough, and uh, I spoke to a former head of MI5 who said, "Well, the only reason Jeremy Fleming would would have left is is because uh, he saw his route to the top of MI5 blocked by someone else." But she said he was hugely talented, uh, and he gave this fascinating speech. Um, uh, and really quite encouraging to me anyway, in which uh, he, he made a lot of interesting points. And one of them was that the Russian forces are now in, a, as he put it, a desperate situation with supplies and munitions running out. And the implication is, of course, that GCHQ uh, knows this. It, it, it is able to track messages. We know that the Russians are particularly bad at uh, cyber security. At, well, well, I say cyber security, I mean general security on the battlefield in terms of information.
1: So on that point, though, uh, Saul, don't you think that, you know, clearly this is part of a kind of overall information strategy. This is kind of, you know, insider information which is being made public. What do you think the purpose of that is?
0: I think there are two purposes, really. I think generally speaking, it's to calm uh, fears in the West of an imminent nuclear attack. And we'll talk more about that later. But also, I think it's to firm up Uh, the Western Alliance, frankly, I suspect this is uh, partly a speech that's been given after authorization from the government. And it's basically saying, Russia is losing this war, and we need to keep going in our support for the Ukraine.
1: Yeah, and presumably, it's also sending a message to the Russians saying, uh, you know, we know just how dire the situation is. I mean, it's the signal is, is going in two directions, I would have thought, I don't know, what do you think?
0: Yeah exactly right it's also saying that i think they want to stress to the russians that the nuclear blackmail the nuclear saber rattling which has uh, has been ongoing since the start of this conflict um is not going to is not going to wash uh, and as i say we'll discuss other elements of his speech when when we as we move on through the program. I mean, there's another elephant in the room, of course, Patrick, as a possible response to the attack on the bridge, and that's Belarus. I mean, what do you think about the possibility that Belarus may actually come into the war on Russia's side? It's been complicit up till now, but actually use its troops.
1: Yeah, I think it's pretty unlikely. Again, I think it. there's, there's a kind of rather clumsy uh, attempt, I think, to get the Ukrainians to switch uh, some of their resources from the, the crucial areas in the south and east back up to the north uh, to defend against an attack, which I don't think will probably come. I mean, if it did come, judging by what's happened at the beginning of the war, it would probably be a disaster. You'd be using you know, much depleted troops, low-grade troops, against a uh, very experienced defender who's already proved that they can rebuff an attack there once uh, with great effect. Uh, so I think that that's part of it. Um, the other, I think, is it comes straight from Lukashenko himself, Uh, It's a declaration of loyalty. He is really connected at the hip to Putin. He sinks or swims with him. I mean, Lukashenko has been in power since 1994. He's much hated by his own people. His survival depends on Putin's support. So he's bet the farm on Putin staying in power. So again, I think it's overall it's a sign of uh, general weakness and desperation we all know that Putin is not in a good place, but just how weak do you think he is, Saul? Uh,
0: well, uh, you know, I'm a basic optimist in in the pro-Ukrainian camp on this, and I think he's very weak. I, I think all the indicators, the the points Fleming's making, this this wild lashing out by sending all those cruise missiles. I mean, after all, each cruise missile costs an awful lot of money. We know that the uh, Russians are running out of munitions. I mean, they basically sent uh, their whole fleet or a big chunk of their long-range missile fleet in one go? And to what military purpose? That's the question you have to ask, Patrick, because actually that was a terror attack, not a targeted attack against military installation. So it's having no effect on the actual course of the war. It's simply for domestic consumption, I would suggest.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, we all know from uh, our knowledge of the Second World War that this is militarily... Uh, the effect of, of mass bombardments of civilian areas uh, don't really make any sense at all. Look at the Blitz. It killed more than 40,000 civilians in Britain. London was attacked virtually every night from September 1940 uh, until April the following year. In, in one night alone in Coventry, we all remember the, the uh, attack on Coventry in November 1945, odd people were killed then. Uh, in Germany, throughout the course, there were 600,000 civilians were killed. Now. The effect, as we're going to hear from Colonel Kazan later on, it, it just stiffens the resolve of the soldiers on the front line. They hear that their loved ones are being battered you know, hundreds of miles away back in what are supposed to be or had seemed to be becoming safe areas. And all it does is just make them even more determined uh, to defeat the enemy.
0: Yeah. And the other question I suppose we're we're bound to ask, if we feel that Putin is getting weaker, which clearly he is, I mean, how how weak his political basis is at home is is another matter. But that he is losing the war, and it's very difficult to see a way for him to turn it round, is pretty clear to me now that the the consequences of all of that, of course, the fear that he might strike out, well, we're, we're going to consider that in a little while. But of course, this also brings into another intriguing possibility, and that's NATO itself gets directly involved. What, what do you think of the chances?
1: Well, before we get to that, Saul, I'm, I'm just think, uh, thinking about the home base because it seems to me that um, he's now Putin is now being manipulated uh, by people who should be peripheral players. I'm thinking of these sociopathic types like Ramzan Kadyrov, the... Um, mm-hmm. Chechen leader and Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, the chief of the Wagner Group, uh, who's essentially a kind of mafia boss. Now, in a state like Russia, these people have got their uses. You can use them to kind of manipulate opinion and things like that, but they should not be calling the shots. Uh, But they they, they really should be peripheral figures. But they seem to be moving into the center. They're now dictating the narrative along with these sort of um, social media blowhards. Uh, They seem to be calling the shots now they're calling for um a ramping up of these revenge attacks and putin is res- responding now that that seems to me to be a sign of grave weakness at the center now to get back to NATO, i think um we'll be hearing again from colonel kazan about this but i think it's becoming more of a possibility a conventional response uh of some nature which really kind of removes the fiction that we're not Really totally in on the, um, on the Ukrainian side. You know, it's a kind of bit of a legalistic fiction, don't you think?
0: Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, we are in this war, let's be in no doubt about that. We don't have soldiers on the ground who are fighting in the front line. In fact, we've almost certainly got a few in Ukraine advising, but we're providing hardware. And this reminds me a little bit, Patrick, of the United States in 1940 and 1941 before Pearl Harbor. It was clearly in the war against Germany, uh, although it hadn't declared war. Therefore, when Germany made the decision to declare uh, war on the United States just after Pearl Harbor, it did so uh, I, as it said at the time, because nothing's actually changed. It was in effect already at war with the United States, and I, I suspect Russia regards the situation with NATO uh, exactly like that now.
1: yeah, so I suppose there's nothing to lose really, is there it's sort of you know, politically expedient um, to tell people back home in the West that we're not actually at war with Russia when in DBR in a moment may come. When that fiction is no longer necessary. Well, that's all for the first half. Do join us afterwards when we'll hear from Lieutenant Colonel Pavlo Kazan of the Ukrainian Army.
0: Welcome back. We're now going to hear from Lieutenant Colonel Pavlo Kazan, the commander of a C-4 ISR unit of the Ukrainian army, which specializes in reconnaissance, intelligence, and artillery fire correction. The colonel, you might remember, spoke to us in late August, just as the recent counter-offensives were about to be launched. Needless to say, he did not let the cat out of the bag. Okay, Colonel, welcome back to the podcast. Um, obviously, a lot's been happening in Ukraine today. We're hearing um, reports of missile strikes across the country, Can you tell me where you are and and what you've heard is happening today?
2: We are now on the front line. And, of course, it it was really terrible news again from peaceful territories uh, in the morning. We started to walk early morning today. And, of course, everybody once again saw the true face of this terroristic state called Russia. And uh, Russians is killing our people again and again. They killing our civilians. They killing children's women, men, everybody. Of course, it's, you know, it's, it's really very difficult for me every time from the beginning of the war because we now here on the front line with the helmets, uh, bulletproof uh, vests and with weapon and so on. And we are now fighting and we understand where the enemy is because this is a front line, but it is really difficult. It is, Really complicated uh, for civilians to understand and for us as well of course that civilians and peaceful territories in any time could be targeted by Russian missiles and these hundred of missiles which are going to, to Ukrainian territory from from Russia and um, of course we, it's terrible news for us, so we, we, we are waiting of course for new and new missiles. And uh, we, we need to be prepared.
0: We spoke before, Colonel, about the, uh, the weapons that the West were supplying and how they had helped to tip the balance. What sort of new weapons would make a difference to these sort of long-range missile strikes?
2: Yes. Uh, indeed, uh, first of all, artillery. And uh, very much appreciate to our Western partners for really beautiful Weapon for 777 and Susanna and other very good uh, examples of uh, uh, artillery vehicles. It's uh, the um, uh, regular artillery and self-propelled artillery. And of course, this weapon could give us much more balance. At the same time, we understand that now Russian army has really larger quantity of weapon of people, and of equipment. And our aim and our main weapon is our brains, and we need to be as smart as possible. And, of course, we need uh, much more weapon, much more equipment from our Western partners because we need to use these uh, modern technologies and uh, high technological weapon to win this old-fashioned weapon, but with the mass uh, quantity, this big quantity of weapon.
0: When we spoke at the end of August, the Ukrainian military, or since we spoke, the Ukrainian military has achieved a number of spectacular gains on the battlefield in the northeast, east and south. Can you give us an assessment of why your armed forces are doing so well and why, on the other hand, the Russian army is performing so poorly?
2: Uh, yes, from beginning of August, it was uh, many big successes of uh, Ukrainian army. And, of course, this is, first of all, because of our big experience of brave and heroic people in the Ukrainian army, very professional, very highly uh, equipped and trained. But, of course, it's also because of uh, good equipment, Good, uh, good weapon, which we received from Western partners. And I already said about artillery equipment. Uh, my unit is working with triple seven weapon and with uh, other uh, artillery, self-propelled ar- artillery. But this is also because of, uh, of HIMARS, which is also very important in this war. It's a very precise, uh, uh, equipment, very precise weapon and, uh, I think that we need much more of this weapon to win as soon as possible, as quick as possible, because first of all, this is a war of technologies and we, we have smaller army. We have lower quantity of, uh, of our personnel, but uh, we can much more trained people. And of course we have much more motivated people because we are protecting our motherland. We are protecting our land, and uh, this is the only way for us to win in this war and If we compare with the Russian soldiers who came to Ukraine just to kill civilian people just to destroy our city, and of course, this is absolutely another motivation and uh, the level of professionalism is lower than Ukrainian. And, of course, the moral level, we, we could not say, of course, about the morality and about the, the moral level of this Russian army.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about your unit's personal contribution to the recent successes?
2: We are a C4ISR group. We have different kind of work. First of all, we're doing our work as a artillery fire correction, uh, working with different types of artillery. Here on the front line, also we're doing electronic support. We have very high technological equipment, which give us possibilities to make a support to our URVs on the front line. We, we discovering the electromagnetic picture of, of our sports where we are working on. And uh, also we doing this. Um, uh, common support with common operation picture programs with C four isars command control computing communications intelligence civilians and reconnaissance. So this is very complex activity. This is what I can say. Of course, it's it's very limited. <coughs> Sorry, I can say, uh, but this is very complex. We are combining this intelligence and reconnaissance within artillery fire co- co- correction and. This electronic support and communication issues to implement high technologies in, in, a, in a processing and analyzing of information and transmitting of data around the units uh, on the front line. It's territorial defense forces and land force and other other types
0: of army. Do you have any personal knowledge, Colonel, of the morale of the Russian soldiers? You, you spoke about morality, but what, what about their willingness to actually carry out orders on the battlefield? Yeah,
2: first of all, the uh, what indicators which are characterizing the Russians is alcoholism and uh, drug using. And uh, they are not support. Uh, they want the uh, soldiers on the front line so for for Russians their soldiers it's just a meat and uh, as we've seen on some videos which which we receive from our intelligence or even from social networks that they even told like openly that they the officers say to soldiers to to privates that you are meat for a front line. so this is a really very low level of morality and it's it's not strange because these people come in to our territory just to kill people, just to kill civilians, just to, to destroy our cities. So it's, it's, it's not strange for us.
0: Yeah, and you talked about the soldiers effectively being uh, fed into a meat grinder and lack of respect from the officers towards the ordinary soldiers, which I imagine is the opposite of the experience in the Ukrainian army. Are you concerned about the potential extra numbers of soldiers that Russia might be able to send into the fight?
2: Ah, uh, yes, indeed, we know about this uh, mobilization, and uh, despite that they will mobilize the alcoholics and uh, drug addicted people, of course it will be quantity of personnel, and we should be prepared that many more units will come to the front line. Yes, they will be not very trained. They will not be motivated. They will be not equipped with good uh, weapon and equipment. Nevertheless, we should be prepared. And uh, we are doing our best to be prepared to new wave of this mobilization and to have many more units on the front line.
0: How concerned are you that Putin will try to halt the recent tide of defeats uh, by using a tactical nuclear weapon
2: it's a really big issue and it's a big discussion i i read many analytics about it and i think it's really possible it's really big danger and uh, i believe that uh, our friends our partners uh, in western europe and the usa should be prepared for this situation and Ukraine, of course, we should be prepared to this situation because it's really possible that Putin and Russian army, Russian government will use a tactical nuclear weapon. And actually there is a no very strict border between strategical and tactical weapon because mm-hmm. it's just depends of the mass of the, the potential of this charge of yeah. nuclear charge. And that is why it's uh, it's possible that Putin will uh, target first of all uh, front line, first of all uh, our units on the front line on on the east and Donbass and the Kharkiv and in the south on on Kherson direction. But it is also possible that uh, he could also use it for for cities. But I think with the less probability.
0: Uh, and if he does cross that red line what do you think the west response should be
2: uh you know it's it's very complex question because i believe it's the always the red lines it's always and always overcomes and this is this is the new red line with with mm-hmm. nuclear weapon and i think uh, this is my personal opinion that of course we need to prevent all this Attack all this uh, nuclear attack to destroy all possible bases on the territory of Russia. It's of course very difficult for, for Western politician to talk about targeting on Russian territories. This is very sensitive political question because we still fighting on Ukrainian territory. Mm-hmm. And this is what was with the illegal bridge next to Crimea. This, it was also Ukrainian territory. But we are, we are now fighting on Ukrainian territory. But in this situation, I think that only prevention of this nuclear attack will be fruitful, will, will, be, will be necessary for all the world. Because if Putin, if Russians will attack with nuclear weapon, it will be unbelievable yeah. danger, yeah. unmeasurable danger, because nobody knows what will be the consequences. Because we still don't know about consequences from Chernobyl catastrophe or from Fukushima uh, catastrophe. But in case if uh, if real nuclear weapon will be used, even if this weapon uh, called tactical weapon, nobody knows what will be the consequences, not only for Ukraine, but all the Europe and all the world.
0: So, Colonel, you seem to be suggesting that there should be a preemptive strike using uh conventional weapons if it looks likely that Russia is going to use it
2: absolutely i even thinking that we need to shift on the new stage of this war because we absolutely understand but this is third world war, and of course the Belarus already involved in this war, and uh, it is like a some kind of hided involvement, but nevertheless, they they completely involved in this war. And of course, our Western partners, they are not officially involved in this war, but within weapon and equipment, training, advising, and everything. Of course, this is Third World War. And I believe that we need to shift on the new stage of this war to attack uh, Russian territory to protect our territory from the possible new attacks uh, from a Russian basis, from Russian territory.
0: Looking a little bit further ahead, Colonel, when we spoke in August, uh, you said then you were fairly confident that Ukraine would win and not only win, recover all its lost territory, including Crimea. Do you feel even more confident now?
2: I think that we have only way now to win because there is no way back for us. And uh, uh, this is, of course, some kind of political question because always we're thinking about our lives because as I am, as a commander, I would like to protect my people on the front line. Mm. But uh, our politicians uh, would like to protect uh, Ukrainian people. At the same time, I think that we should talk about all Ukrainian territory. We need to release all Ukrainian territory. And uh, of course, we have to, to think how to do it more effective with less losses of, of our so- soldiers but, and our civilian people. But uh, there is no space uh, for negotiation with terrorists. There is no space now to negotiate with Russia, or to convince them, or to propose them somehow, because we can see that there is no any uh, adequate response from them. This is like a uh, absolutely for us. It's absolutely clear that Russia would like to destroy us, and Russia to, to, would like to damage Ukraine and would like to, to make Europe and all country be afraid from their actions. And in this situation, there is only way to destroy Russia as a country. And I believe that it is impossible to have such a country in a, in a civilized war. It is absolutely impossible to have such a member of UN or other international organization. And this is also time to, to think, it's time to measure, it's time to, to evaluate how international organizations could have this country uh, as a member.
0: Yeah, I agree. And and one solution, of course, is to expel Russia from the uh, Security Council of the United Nations, which it wills in a in a political sense. What do you think will happen to Putin? Can he survive the humiliation of losing a war?
2: Uh, I think that uh, Putin should be like a, other military criminals should be in prison. And this is international law, and uh, I believe in rule of law and social justice. And that is why I believe that Putin and other people who are responsible for the beginning of the war and for managing of the war should be in prison. At the same time, I'm absolutely sure that all Russian citizens are also responsible for this war because they elected this parliament They elected president and they, uh, mostly of them, mostly of them are supporting activity of uh, Russian army on the Ukrainian territory. They they supporting this war.
1: Well, that was a very powerful interview. I was struck by the the emotion in his voice as he talks about the scale of the missile attack on the civilian infrastructure. Clearly, uh, this is having you know a huge effect um, on the soldiers who are, who are defending their loved ones. And there must be a feeling of impotence uh, when you're on the front line and, and you can't do anything to protect those you care about at home. But I think there's a, a, a lot of things here. You know, when we spoke to him before, we were we were both very impressed by the, by the resolve of the Ukrainian troops, as articulated by him, and that seems to be uh, holding strong. I would say, wouldn't you?
0: yeah I mean just to quickly add on your first point patrick i mean it 's terribly difficult isn 't it for you know probably they felt this a little bit in the second World War when they were fighting in distant climes and even in in Europe, and of course uh, people at home are being bombed and it it 's infuriating really because, as he says, you know everyone 's got their body armor on. you know what the situation is you 're up against your enemy and you 're on the front line uh, but to think about the defenseless civilians uh in the cities all over ukraine i mean you it 's just so moving to hear him talk about that. And of course, as we discussed before, it's just doubling down on his resolve, isn't it? Absolutely.
1: And we come back to what appeared to be an imbalance at first sight with the kind of might of Russia on one side and little or relatively little Ukraine on the other. But as he says, uh, and I don't think it's a boastful statement, they are a lot smarter than the people that they're fighting. They've got the technology, they've got the skills and they've got the determination.
0: Yeah, and they're talking about, of course, inevitably in the context of, of these recent attacks, uh, that they need more. I mean, we've supplied a lot of good stuff, which he he, he checked off, the sevens, the high Mars, the self-propelled artillery. But now they need these anti-missile systems that are going to prevent these attacks on the cities. And it is infuriating, Patrick, to think that both uh, the Americans and the Germans promised these systems months ago. Uh, and they're only now finally rushing forward the delivery because, of, of course, of the recent attacks. It is, I suppose another example of how those indiscriminate attacks are backfiring on Russia.
1: You do have to ask yourself why it was uh, that they were so reticent in supplying something that they actually promised, Uh, because a lot of people have died uh, because of this delay. I suppose the only explanation is they somehow they thought it might be provocative. But I think that moment has long passed. And it goes back to what we were saying about the uh, high probability, I think, in both our views, that NATO is going to be much more obviously engaged uh, in the weeks and months to come.
0: Yeah. Well, he, he talk, he made a lot of interesting points about the different kind of motivation of, of the two sides. Now, of course, he would say that the Ukrainians are, uh, you know, morale is high and they're determined to defend them and that they're determined to defend their motherland. I mean, I think that goes without saying, but it's his characterization of the Russians that I thought was particularly blunt. Um, they just come to kill is what he said, you know, their moral level is zero. And worse than that, uh, you know, when I asked about morale as, a, as opposed to morality, um, you know, he said that, that they're, they're just taking a lot of alcohol and drugs. And that even worse, there's this real disconnect, which we've discussed before, Patrick, and has always been present in Russian armies between officers and soldiers.
1: You do have to, again, ask yourself what is in the minds of, of these Russian troops, but not just the troops. I'm thinking about the Air Force. A lot of these uh, missiles were delivered from Uh, Aircraft. So you know, as a as a pilot in a highly sophisticated military airplane, you you would regard yourself as being part of the sort of elite, and there you are, standing off at a very safe distance, pressing a button that sends. A missile into what you know is not a is not a uh, legitimate military target. I mean, how do they sleep at night?
0: Yeah, well, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to drag us back to the Second World War again. But of course, the uh, you know the the pilots in the RAF, you know, the story very well, Patrick. You've written about it. I think the difference between the precision bombing and the area, so called area bombing, which is basically just destroying large chunks of cities, you know, we may feel now. Didn't some of the pilots feel uneasy about that? I mean, you tell me, Patrick. I'm guessing some of them did feel uneasy about it but they still on the whole carried out their orders
1: yeah there were remarkably few pilots who at the time felt disquiet about what they were doing a lot more of course after the war when it became clear just how devastating and uh, Deadly, the whole strategic bombing campaign had been. But I think what you've got to remember is there is a a very large element of, well, they started it. Everyone in those airplanes had either direct or indirect experience of the blitz. They might have lost members of their family. They'd certainly, because they were based in Britain, see the destruction, physical destruction to cities that was done by the Luftwaffe. So I think that did quite a lot to blunt moral sensibilities. I can't really see that there's. um, any real equivalent experience on the, on the Russian side of this conflict?
0: No, because uh, as we know, it was a a response in the second world war to uh, an absolute terror regime that had begun the war. And the opposite is true in this particular case. I suppose you have to get into the heads of Russian servicemen, particularly those who have been brainwashed into believing uh, that this is a just war. Um, Another absolutely fascinating point made, and this rather uh, goes against everything I've been saying recently, Patrick, which is the genuine fear among Ukrainians and and the colonel himself that there will be a nuclear attack. And he he made an interesting point, uh, actually, about the difference between tactical and strategic. He said there isn't much difference. It's just to do with the size of of the warhead. You know, let's not not, uh, get caught up in that. But he thinks there's a real danger. Uh, And of course, he's on the front line where he suspects the first explosion is likely to come.
1: I think he's absolutely... Absolutely right about this uh, division. That it's it's really non-existent between strategic and tactical. Uh, interesting that uh, you know on our side uh, the intelligence is saying it's it's not that likely. You've got some interesting insight into that, haven't you? Saul, about the actual mechanics of deploying a uh, nuclear warhead of whatever description.
0: Yeah, well, I was having a chat with someone uh, who knows about these things recently, who said that actually, uh, before you can use a nuclear weapon, you are going to s- send off some kind of signature, electronic signature, presumably, that can be identified. Uh, and what's fascinating about the Fleming speech, uh, that's the head of our GCHQ uh, cybersecurity uh, organization, Jeremy Fleming, saying yesterday, actually, we think that the use of a a nuclear weapon in Ukraine is, as he put it, a long way off and that the intelligence agencies, including GCHQ, have a good chance of spotting an attack. So that's confirming uh, what we've heard before. And it also links into what the colonel was saying, which is that I hope before a nuclear attack that the West uh, uh, actually responds. And I pressed him on that, Patrick, and he said, no, no, I, I absolutely am talking about a preemptive strike on any sites where the russians may be able to uh use nuclear weapons from and what's interesting about all of this when we piece it all together is it it i think it makes me feel a a little bit easier i hope it makes the colonel feel easier if he's listening to the program after we go out that actually uh that's what fleming is saying we have the capacity to do and the implication is we might do it
1: yeah so we're talking about a an, an air raid a precision israeli style if you want uh air raid on the actual site where the nuclear missile would be launched from or the air base from where the aircraft would take off. Is that how you see it?
0: Yes, we we need to make this clear, actually, because it does sound a bit alarming, doesn't it? If you're if you're not specific, and uh, we're talking about a conventional strike, either with precision missiles or or with planes on the locations or, or on the bases and on the on the missile launchers or anything that that can actually send a, a nuclear weapon. So uh, that's what he's calling for. That's apparently what the, we have the capacity to do. But I don't think it's going to get anywhere near that, personally, Patrick. Because I suspect these conversations are going on. As we discussed last week, there are chains of communication still open to Moscow uh, and that they will be making it very clear that that is the likely response if Russia even thinks about using a nuclear weapon. So I don't think it's uh, likely anytime soon, but that's not going to make people in Ukraine feel a whole lot better when they're worried uh, about you know the destruction of their civilian population.
1: Yeah, and another big takeaway for me from uh, your conversation was that as he said previously, the colonel blames the whole Russian people for what's going on, not just the Kremlin. So, you know, the Russian people put Putin there, they've kept him there. And the consequence of that is that the only way we're going to get peace in his mind is destroying the whole Russian way of thinking and doing things. So in other words, Carthago delenda est you went to a post school um, (laughs) <laughs> so you'll know you'll know what that means. Yeah, Carthage must be destroyed. Yeah, as Cato kept telling the Senate during the Third Punic War of uh, what was it one four nine, roughly one fifty BC, and uh, as indeed it was. So I think this is a very very important thing we've got to keep in our minds: is that the Ukrainian people. This is a mild mannered, decent guy, the colonel, and there's him saying this absolutist. Uh, Doctrine, And I think that's probably going to be true of most Ukrainians, uh, that that this war can only end, not only when the Russians have been driven out of every square meter of Ukrainian territory, but when the whole rotten edifice of uh, post-communist rule uh, collapses. Now, what happens after that is uh, anyone's guess. But one thing is sure that there's plenty of trouble ahead, sadly.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, just to stress, he's an electrical engineer and environmentalist. I mean, he's the last person, frankly. Patrick you would think would be talking in such hardline terms. So it is slightly scary because as soon as you uh, you know you you absolutely double down in that way it makes it very difficult for the other side so to speak to to withdraw from a war with any kind of semblance of of dignity frankly. Uh, but that's his point isn't it? There shouldn't be any dignity. Putin needs to fall and I rather agree with that but as you say Patrick what comes next then and, and could it be even worse than Putin? I mean we'll we'll find out of course.
1: Okay. Well that's all we've got time for. Join us next week when we'll be talking to a key analyst or participant in the war and bringing you all the latest news. Goodbye.